0: 1. Let's listen to the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons, their two sons, were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naobah's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand is turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods, go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the women exclaimed, "'Can this be Naomi?' Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The
1: other day I was having a conversation with the sibling of a young man who's going through a hard time. Fifteen years ago, he went off um, to college, and, uh, and then he went into consulting work after College in New York City. He did a little time on Wall Street, and then he moved out west, um, Salt Lake, to learn about how companies work. Several years ago, five years ago, he started his own company with a, a few of his friends. It was tough at first, but eventually it became quite successful. He had a chance to sell it at one point to his original employer. Um, But it meant too much to him to sell so soon. The company was his pride, his joy, his life, his identity. And then COVID hit and it all went south. Uh, His company fell into bankruptcy. It was engulfed like a sandcastle with the incoming tide. Um, And this young man saw his dream disappear, and his security, his prestige, and his self-esteem melt away with it. To this day, his mother and his sister still haven't found a way to even gently refer to uh, this subject with him. His life is shrouded in silence and dominated by a sense of failure. Few things cause us to feel more helpless than having to live a story we don't like. Maybe one that involves the loss of a loved one, or a transition we did not want, a difficult diagnosis, or a dream that fell through. At one time or another, every one of us deals with disappointments in our lives and the feelings that life is unfair and has not dealt us a fair hand of cards. This morning we begin a new series of messages. We're going to be looking at the story of Ruth for the next four weeks, one chapter a week, and we'll watch this story unfold as it began in tragedy with this family, and and now these people who are caught, living a story that they do not like, that they didn't want to live. And the questions that this story raises for us, where is God in the midst of all of this? Uh, how do I live now? Um, what, what do I have left after all of this loss? The story of Ruth and the story of her mother-in-law, Naomi, is set in history as about 1,050 years before the time of Christ, um, before the birth of Jesus, set during uh, the period of the Judges. If you were following along in your Bibles or in the Bibles in the pews in front of you, you'll remember that Ruth follows the book of Judges in the Bible. And so it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And the period of the judges is a time of kind of chaos and anarchy. The the people of God, the Israelites, they have made their way through the wilderness with uh, Moses and and then Joshua. Then at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, they're at the brink of the promised land. Joshua then leads them into the promised land and they conquer the land and as time goes on they grow complacent and they become they start worshipping foreign gods and they and the social fabric descends into chaos this is before um, any of the kingdoms have been set up and so God sends judges to lead them back um, into uh, right relationship with him and then they kind of do that and he rescues them and then they kind of get right with God and then they get complacent and then they things kind of descend into chaos and then a judge comes and helps brings them back and and this is kind of the cycle of Israel's life during during this period. And you can see at the end of the book of Judges this famous line where it says in those days there was no king in Israel. All the people did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, another word for that is anarchy, right? And so this is the historical setting of the book of Ruth. Now, Ruth doesn't take place after, even though it follows the book of Judges. It takes place during the period of Judges. It's as though the story of Ruth and and her family is sort of taken and and looked at under a microscope during this period of chaos in the Judges, um, in time of the Judges. So the story begins with this woman, Naomi, and her husband, Elimelech. They were Ephrathites, which means they were from Bethlehem. It was part of Bethlehem, about five miles south of Jerusalem. And famine had struck the land. You might remember hundreds of years earlier when famine had struck the land and the descendants of Abraham had to go to Egypt, right? Um, Well, similarly, um, Naomi and Elimelech decide that they need to leave in order to go to another land where they can find some food. And so they go to this land of Moab, they find uh, and they bring their boys Kilion and Malon. They head out across the Dead Sea. Here's a little map of the region Um, about 50 miles away. They stop, make sure to stop at Arches um, before heading into Moab um, and visit the... Visit the arch there, but anyway, so di- different arches. But only 50 miles away, but a completely different world—a uh, totally like they've been on a different planet. Um, they have different cultures, they worship different gods, they have different sets of values, and there's a long history of of trouble between Israel and the Moabites. We'll get into that in the coming weeks. But they settle down there. And God, it seems, provides for them. The two boys, they grow and they marry local Moabite women. One called Orpah and the other called Ruth. And indeed, everything seems to be going um, as fine as you can expect until the angel of death sweeps into the land and Elimelech dies, Naomi's husband first, leaving her with her two sons and her two daughters-in-law. Then uh, ten years passes, and the two sons die. And so now she is left with her two daughters-in-law. They had uh, all widows, right? So here's how the family tree looks, just so you can conceptualize this. We have Elimelech married to Naomi. They're Israelites. They're two Israelite sons, Malon and Kilion, who marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And right off the bat, in the beginning of this book, in the beginning of the story, we get the sense that God is up to something, even in the midst of the tragedy. And the reason we get that sense is because in Hebrew literature, when you see irony at the beginning of a story, it raises questions that you, the reader, can expect will be resolved later on in the story. And right off the bat, there are several points of irony that surround the names of these characters and places. Um, So let me look at these really quick. The first is that there is a famine in the land of Bethlehem. You know what Bethlehem means? It means house of bread. So there's no bread in the house of bread, which then leads to the question, are you sure Bethlehem is the house of bread? Which then leads to the question, are you sure Yahweh is your provider? The second point of irony surrounds the name Elimelech. Elimelech means my God is king. So the king's role is to provide for the well-being of the citizenry, right? So my God is king is forced to leave the, the house of bread because there's no bread and then he dies. Are you sure your God is king? raises that question. It doesn't seem that way. It seems as though the author se- seems to be saying, suggesting that God is a delusion. Ha, how funny it is to say my God is king. And then of course there's the son's names, Malon, which means sickly, and Kilion, which means frail or wasting away. Um, that's kind of an unfortunate situation, right? i um, how would you like to introduce yourself in this way? Hi, my name is Sickly, and this is my brother. He's wasting away. Uh, so they quickly perish, right? Naomi's name means pleasant or the pleasant one, and Ruth's name means friend, and those meanings will come out as the story uh, goes on. And then Orpa's name means back of the neck because that's what Naomi and Ruth saw as she turned around and went home. I just want to pause for a moment and say a couple of things about tragedy and grief and loss in the life of faith. And the first is that tragedy falls on all of us. I wish I could say that if you give your life to Christ and you become a Christian and you read your Bible regularly and come to church and pray every day that you will have nothing but blessings in your life. But Obviously, I can't say that, and we all know that that's not true. It wasn't true for Jesus. It wasn't true for his followers. It wasn't true for the patriarchs and prophets that came before him, and nor is it true here in this situation for Naomi and Ruth. The story of Ruth is a story of what many people would simply call a story of bad luck, I mean, the, the tragedy that happens to them and this family is not caused by any of, her, any of their decisions or any of their actions. There's no, no kind of sin that you can relate that this is like punishment or something like that. But nonetheless, it still feels in some ways like some kind of story of failure, failure. Sometimes we experience tragedy in our lives, whether or not we had anything to do with the tragedy that we experience, we experience nonetheless, uh, we experience it as, as failure. And whether it's our failure or the failure of someone else, or the failure of nature or the failure of God, and we, and we have other sophisticated things for calling failure something other than what it is. We call it a learning experience. Um, we call it broadening our experience, or uh, or we might call it a blind alley. We will say things like, if it doesn't kill you, it will make you stronger. And the truth is that uh, failure, loss, tragedy happens to everybody at some time or another, and nobody ever wants another opportunity to grow through suffering. Thank you very much. But The problem is we can't avoid it. It's inevitable. And so the second thing I want to say about that is that these experiences, when we have them, whether it's grief, tragedy, failure, they have the power sometimes to set us on a new course, in a new chapter which our lives will be expressed in a new way. Not that it's an opportunity to celebrate or to pursue, but sometimes awful situations have the power to motivate us to go in a different direction in our lives. And that's exactly what happens with Naomi here. Uh, Naomi, at this point, she could have thrown up her hands um, and wallowed in her grief and self-pity, but she doesn't do that. Instead, she decides to take definitive action and return back home. No matter what the people in Bethlehem might say about her leaving when the going got tough or allowing her Pure Israelite sons to marry foreign Moabite women, no matter what they might say, she was determined to go back to her homeland. She was forced and motivated by this tragedy to go in a different direction. Henry Nouwen said it like this He said, The dance of life finds its beginnings in grief. Here, a completely new way of living is revealed. It is the way in which pain can be embraced, not out of a desire to suffer, but in the knowledge that something new will be born in the pain. Like it or not, something new will be born. Life will be different from here on out. C.S. Lewis put it similarly in A Grief Observed. He said, we were promised sufferings. This was after the loss of his wife. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn and I accept it. And so these sufferings can be used to drag us down or they can be used to motivate us to a higher plane. In those days, as in some cultures today, probably not our culture today, but in some cultures around the world, as in those days, the relationship between a mother-in-law and her daughters in law was very close. And this was the case um, here with Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Naomi was a person with enormous faith and grace and integrity. And so, as she's going to head back home to Bethlehem, she turns to her daughters-in-law, who are Moabites, and she says, you don't need to come with me. Um, you can stay here. You have a future here. You can open this chapter and find a new, find a husband and have your own children. That was an issue in this patriarchal time. For, these, for women to not have a husband meant a whole lot of financial insecurity. Um, and so you can remarry, you can have your own children and live happily ever after. You don't need to come with me. Um, it was a, a gracious thing, I think, that Naomi was saying to, to the girls. Um, and, uh, and Orpah, one of the daughters-in-law, she agreed. So she turns around and she goes back to um, Moab. But Ruth would not leave Naomi. Ruth turns to her mother-in-law and she makes this promise this covenant obligation of steadfast love and we will see this um, captured in a in a really important Hebrew phrase or word called chesed that is describes the essence of the character of God his loving kindness his steadfast love we will see this in God in the as a central theme in the book of Ruth but it is first expressed with Ruth herself she says this that it's uh, so powerful so important that sometimes we even hear these words spoken at a wedding not from the daughter-in-law to the mother-in-law but between you know the bride and groom the Ruth says this to her grieving mother-in-law as she is grieving herself do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even if death parts me from you. And so when Naomi saw this commitment, this steadfast love and loyalty and faithfulness of her daughter-in-law, She took Ruth with her back to Bethlehem. I want to pause for a moment and just reflect on this kind of commitment that Ruth is making to her mother-in-law, Naomi. We live in a time, in a culture of expediency and immediacy where we don't value commitments. We don't really seem to value vows that we take um, or commitments in general in our culture. Um, Even mobile phone companies have picked up on this, which is why you no longer do you have to get a two-year contract with your cell phone carrier. You can now choose a one-year, six-month, or pay-as-you-go options, right? Um, And so if you've tried to run an event on Facebook using the events application, um, you'll know that nobody says yes to this. Um, If anybody clicks on anything, they will click the the thing that says maybe so that, uh, you know, they can keep their options open in case a better event comes closer to the event. This is the culture in which we live. We live in a generation of keeping our options open. That's kind of our generation. One philosopher called it liquid modernity. He said, we we never want to commit to any one identity or community or place, and so we remain like liquid in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape. This is why at Mount Olympus we still practice the archaic practice of church membership because um, we realize that in a culture of non-commitment that making a commitment to a community is a countercultural practice that brings life Um, and value to us and to the world. Pete Davis was a graduate student at Harvard um, and he gave the commencement address in 2018 at Harvard and he was reflecting on the multitude of choices that are available to such students as Pete Davis, graduate student of Harvard. And the inclination to keep options open. He said this, it's great to have options When you lose interest in something, but I've learned here that the more times I do this, the less satisfied I am with any given option. And lately, the experiences I crave are less the rushes of novelty and more those perfect Tuesday nights when you eat dinner with the friends you have known for a long time who have made a commitment to you and you have made a commitment to them and who will not quit on you because they found someone better. I have discovered in my time here at Harvard that the people who inspire me the most are those who left the hallway with all of its doors from which to choose, took one door and shut the door behind them and settled in. It's Fred Rogers recording episode 895 of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood because he was committed to advancing a humane model of children's television. It's Dorothy Day sitting with the same outcast folks night after night after night because it was important that someone was committed to them. It's not just the Martin Luther King Jr. who confronted the fire hoses in 1963, but the Martin Luther King who hosted his 1,000th boring planning meeting in 1967. Did you know that the word dedicate has two meanings? The first meaning is to stick with something for a long period of time, to dedicate yourself to something The second meaning is to make holy, and I don't think those are a coincidence. I don't think that's a coincidence because the practice of holiness is the commitment to a long obedience in the same direction. And I have seen um, in the most dedicated people around me, Um, What I have witnessed is this pursuit of holiness comes with a a large side helping of joy. Uh, We commit ourselves and joy becomes a byproduct. In his book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction, the late Eugene Peterson wrote this. He says there's a great market for religious experience in our world. In other words, we like to all the feel goods of church and stuff the experience, there is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. And so Ruth, this outsider, this Moabite becomes our teacher for what this kind of commitment looks like in our modern world. But there in Bethlehem, the, the grief begins to hit home with Naomi, what she had been holding in for so long. When she comes to the familiarity of her community, it just comes out. Um, her friends hadn't rejected her; they welcomed her, and they even welcomed Orpah and Ruth. Or um, they even welcomed Ruth. Orpah didn't come. Um, but they hadn't rejected her uh, in any way, and so in the midst of all of this, she bursts out. Her grief gets a hold of her, and she says, my name should not be called Naomi. I should be called Mara or Mary, which means bitter, for I left and I had everything. I had my husband. I had my two boys. I was full. Now I've come back. I don't have anything. I'm empty. I don't have anything. I have absolutely nothing. The irony again, Naomi, the pleasant one, returns home bitter. Maybe you've felt that way at one point in your life or another. That's how she felt in her heart, but was it true? Did she really have nothing? Of course not. She did have something. She had someone. She had Ruth. She had her daughter-in-law, who her friends will later say in chapter 4 was more to her than seven sons could possibly be. She had that one person and that one person has the pa- had the power to change Naomi's life. There are times in our lives when we uh, feel loneliness. Loneliness sets in for every one of us two kinds of loneliness. One kind of loneliness is when you're literally alone and you don't have anyone. The other kind of loneliness comes when you are around people that you love but you cannot feel like you can express yourself or share your communicate the longings or struggles of your heart. And so no matter how many friends you might have or how happy a marriage or how connected to the children you might be, there are times when we feel lonely. And for the most part, we attempt to fill this void. We fill it with activities and stuff and family activities and other activities that we keep going to fill the void. We have dreams, we have goals, we have achievements that keep us focused. And yet in the quiet place of our soul, there is this sense of, I don't know if I belong or I don't know if I, if I feel understood or appreciated. And when the things with which we have filled our lives then are removed, That's when the loneliness screams out. It bursts out as it did with Naomi. And as we see in this text, this outburst of complaint, of lament, when when this happens, it is registered. God hears that complaint. Hears that lament. He hears it from Naomi. Sometimes in the midst of our tragedy, we miss how God Answers. We miss God's provision in our lives that come to us in the form of people who stick by us and love us. In the book of Ruth, as in Esther, there's no word from God, there's no voice of God speaking into the narrative. There's absolute silence from God in the face of these circumstances. And yet, a displaced and vulnerable woman wields this extraordinary power. And faith in God that will bring in great transformation, actually, to human history, as we'll see. Ruth becomes one of the grandmothers, great-great-grandmothers of Jesus. Think back on your lives for a moment or two to those turning points in your life when you felt stuck, when you felt um, challenged in a new chapter, or like you were going through um, some kind of suffering, And think back of those people in your lives who made a difference in that moment. For some, maybe it was many people. It might have been one or two. Um, Just a few people who at critical junctures in our lives said something to us, touched our lives, comforted us, or challenged us in some way that made it all the difference in how our story would then play out. And surely, God not only longs for us to be blessed by these people, but also longs for us to be these people for others, to stick by people in times of need. Well, Naomi thought that she had nothing. The truth was that she had Ruth, um, and that became everything that she needed. Once they arrived in Bethlehem, Ruth began to set work um, to care for Naomi. And God has been subtly at work answering Naomi's blessing on Ruth as well as her complaint to him. And so when we find ourselves in a moment of tragedy or a part of our story that we don't like, remember Naomi and Ruth. Remember Naomi's um, uh, commitment to take action, to do something. And remember Ruth's commitment to Naomi. Um, Neither of them gave up. It has been said that um, a person, an individual, can live for weeks without food, can live for days without water, can live with minutes without air, but a person cannot live for one second without hope. Well, at the end of chapter 1, we begin to see this steadfast love and, and, and kindness of God. At the end of the chapter... This guiding hand of God. It says it was the beginning of the barley harvest, which meant food is coming. There is another chapter. um, This too shall pass. It meant life. It meant new possibilities on the horizon. There is hope. And we will pick up the story next week. Gracious God, thank you for giving us this examples of faith. We thank you for Ruth her commitment to Naomi, and we pray that you will help us a little bit more to reflect on the steadfast love that is yours expressed to us most fully on the cross of Jesus Christ. May we know that nothing will ever separate us from that love, that you're always at work in all circumstances, and may we seek to live lives of dedication and commitment as well.